Well, first of all, let me say that John Hedges did a great job with the Lord's Supper just now. Fits perfectly with the kind of things that I wanted to talk about this morning. Happy Thanksgiving tomorrow, by the way, for all of you. I hope you have a great day today if you're eating or tomorrow, whenever. I pray it's a blessing for you. As Christian fellowships go, churches of Christ don't have a whole lot of ritual. Or at least we would say that we don't have a whole lot of ritual. When you look at this photograph that's on the screen, all of us recognize, I think, that in that photo there is represented a lot of ritual. And you see not only the vestments, the clothing that those who are participating in the worship are, uh, are wearing, but you see an, a great deal of ornateness. You see statues. You see flowers in abundance. Uh, you see an altar, candlesticks, Like, there's just a great deal that represents in that photo the notion of ritual. And when you look at our assembly right now, it's not quite the same. It's actually probably more. When you look at, like, up here, you see a cross even and some things. It's actually more here than what a lot of churches of Christ would have. But we just traditionally just don't have all that much ritual and, you could say, ornamentalism. It's just not here. We don't follow the the traditional Christian calendar. Like some of you who grew up in churches of Christ, you may not even know that there is published every year for a lot of churches a whole calendar of events that people follow and specifically certain Sundays that are allocated as days on which the church will do certain things. And so, for example, there would be a, a Palm Sunday. And the church may well actually, before Easter, hand out palms. And so it goes far beyond just Easter Sunday or a Christmas worship or something like that. They have a traditional calendar that the church will actually follow, and so there's what's called a church year. We don't have carefully orchestrated worship services where everything is exactly written out. Like, I'm not standing up here today with what's called a missal, as I used to do when I was a Catholic, asking you all to kneel at the appropriate times, and then I would read certain words, and you would read them certain words back to me. And there isn't a published sermon somewhere that we can all follow along that would be five minutes in length or something that would also summarize what the worship is all about. We don't have special water. We don't have paintings. We don't have statues. And we're not ornately decorated in any way. But it doesn't mean for a moment that we don't have rituals. Like, for example, everybody can pretty much guess what Dustin's going to say when he stands up here at the beginning of a service, and he starts. And we do have a pretty traditional order of assembly that we follow, and it doesn't vary very much from week to week. We know how Dustin's going to approach the announcements. We know what he's going to say when he finishes up. Probably at the end, he's going to say something like, go in peace, or happy Thanksgiving, go in peace, or it's been great to be with you all, go in peace, or something very close to that, because that's the kind of thing that we do, and that's traditional. This thing sitting where it does in the first service, and then sitting up here in the second service, 
That's a tradition for us. I don't know if I would say it's ritualistic, but it certainly is traditional. And so it's interesting that despite the fact that we want to stay away from things that we would call ritualistic or just traditional, we actually have our own. The fact that you sit in the configuration that you do is a kind of tradition. We have a certain number of lights that are turned on every Sunday. And it's tradition. We pray and we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a certain order and it's a tradition. And we do these things because they work for us. We've developed this set of rituals because they work. Well, the closest thing I think you would say that we have toward a real ritual within our congregation is probably the Lord's Supper. Like we have, you might, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, that within Protestantism there are two sacraments that we tend to continue to celebrate. The Catholic Church has seven We have two. What are the two that we continue to celebrate? The Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two typical sacraments that we would continue to celebrate. Now, we do the other things. We marry. That's a sacrament within the Catholic Church. We do have marriages. But for us, it's not the same kind of thing. It's not a sacrament. So we do have some things that are ritualistic, even though we want to just follow, we would say, the New Testament. The Lord's Supper is one of those, and it's probably because it's specifically commanded that we have, in reference to our meetings, the Lord's Supper. And so we take it. And the fact is that the Lord, if anything, intended for that particular event, the Lord's Supper, to be the one ritualistic kind of event in which we participate week after week when it comes to our worship. And so a while ago, the elders kind of deemed it appropriate that at least one day a year we would take the sermon time and focus specifically on the Lord's Supper. And so that's what we're doing this morning. And I want to say some things about it this morning that I think you might find a little surprising. I'm hoping will be a little bit educational. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26 in your Bibles. And here's the thing. Because we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and because we pretty much do it the way we do, the same way, every Sunday, you, just like I do, end up taking the Lord's Supper for granted. And even though we would say that this is the one time during the the worship time when we're really doing something that the Lord commanded, we still end up, I think, taking it for granted. And I hope we don't. In fact, I would hope that with time, as we reflect, and as we think more about what the Lord's Supper represents and what it's supposed to be, we will take it absolutely less for granted and see it for the significant event that it is. Look at Matthew 26, and I'm just going to read a few verses here, very slowly, kind of one at a time, and make a few comments that I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm hoping you'll find a little bit interesting. Verse 17 On the first day of the week, or sorry, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. Well, it's interesting then, And there is some debate about this, 
about the fact that the Lord's Supper originally takes place in the middle of the Passover meal, or really at the beginning of the Passover meal, and certainly as a part of a meal. And so that's why it's common for Christians, because we do recognize the Passover as an event that takes place within the Jewish calendar. It's common for us to recognize the association between what we do as Christians and what happens with that Passover event, especially at Easter time. Like, are you aware that Easter, you've probably noticed this, moves around from year to year? Easter is not always on the same Sunday each year, like Christmas is on the same day each year. And sometimes Easter is celebrated in April, sometimes it's in March. We never know when it's going to come. Why? Well, because Easter comes directly in relationship to the celebration of the Passover. We know that the crucifixion took place during the Passover feast. And so the resurrection and crucifixion take place again in relationship to the Passover, usually a couple of weeks following the Passover. So we're kind of used to this association. But we don't always recognize in an overt way the connection between the Lord's Supper and the Passover meal that was taking place. In fact, it's interesting that events that were part of the Passover meal are in fact part of what we do on Sunday morning as part of what the Lord's Supper is, or at least should be, and we need to recognize how there's that association. Now, I think it's fine that we do the Lord's Supper the way that we do. But isn't it interesting that everything in the New Testament points toward the Lord's Supper originally having taken place as part of a meal? Everything. Like, I don't know of one incident in the New Testament, if we're going to follow the New Testament example and follow the New Testament teaching in terms of what the Lord's Supper is, I don't know of one instance in the New Testament that points in any direction about the Lord's Supper that it is anything but celebrated in the middle of a meal. Which is interesting for people who don't do that, and yet who say we want to follow the New Testament in the way in which we do the things we do. So last year, you might remember that on this particular day, when we talked about the Lord's Supper in our congregation, we actually had a table set up. And there were people around the table. It was, in fact, the Coughlin family. Do you remember this? And they celebrated a meal together. And as they celebrated that meal together, they also stopped in the middle of it and took the Lord's Supper. And I'm sure there were some people who were sitting and thinking, boy, that just doesn't seem right. But it actually is exactly right. And I think it would be wonderful. We haven't done this, at least not in my experience here. We haven't yet taken the Lord's Supper as part of a meal within our church family, but it would be wonderful if we did that. Now, I think to do it every Sunday might get a little bit unwieldy, and I'm not sure that Jesus really intended that we have to take the Lord's Supper during the midst of a meal. But occasionally, if we did, I think that would be a blessing to our church family. And it certainly would fit the biblical picture for you to, in fact, take the Lord's Supper as part of a meal because that's exactly what they were doing. There was a Passover meal that was taking place with the original meal. And then we know from passages in the New Testament that even in New Testament times, they were still taking the Lord's Supper itself in the context of a meal. If you read 1 Corinthians 11 and the story there about What goes on with the Lord's Supper, that's exactly the context in which you'll find it. In fact, there were people who were drinking the wine at the meal and getting drunk 
because they were having too much wine during the meal. And there were people who were going ahead and eating before others at that meal. And it was causing a problem. So Paul has to write about all of that in 1 Corinthians 11. But definitely, it's in the context of a meal. Well, I think that's interesting. It lets me know that although we have a ritual, it's not necessarily even a biblical ritual in which we participate, but not necessarily either a wrong ritual, because I don't think that God was trying to specify exactly how the Lord's Supper be taken, even when it was originally taken as a meal. Now I want you to look at verse 20. When evening came, and by the way, if we're going to do follow the New Testament example, I don't think it means that we have to have the Lord's Supper of an evening. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to one another, Surely not I, Lord. Well, we miss little things like this sometimes, but note the fact that they are reclining at table. Now, this is standard procedure in the ancient world in terms of carrying off a meal. They would often recline. They didn't have chairs necessarily the way that we do. So they would lie down at a low table and they would eat. One of the problems with the Coggan family last year was they didn't lay on the floor and eat. But even though we don't do that now, and they did it then, we shouldn't miss the significance of them lying on the floor when they eat. It wasn't just that they didn't have chairs. During the course of the Passover meal, they still today will often lie on the floor and specifically lie on their left sides while they eat the Passover. And the reason why is because people in the ancient world did not lie on the floor and eat if they were slaves. They only would lie on the floor and eat if they were free people. That was a sign that you were in fact free. Well, you can get the connection between freedom and slavery and that the Jews came out of Egypt. And when they came out of Egypt, they were now free. And when they started celebrating the Passover, they weren't about to put themselves in the position of eating, standing or sitting or in some other way that would indicate them being anything other than free men. And free men lay down and eat at a table on their left side. And so the Jews, even today, still lie down and eat. And we would miss that entirely when we just read through this story and don't recognize that they were lying at table. Jesus was lying down while he was eating for that very specific reason, because of the freedom that was there within the Passover feast. Well, what does that tell us about the Lord's Supper? What does this meal have to do with freedom? And what should we be thinking about in the course of taking the supper? Surely this freedom... And our freedom from the slavery of sin is entailed in this meal. Now, again, I'm not sure that we should all lie down at a table. I don't know if it needs to be taken that way every Sunday. That is the way that the early church took it, however. And we need to at least see the symbolism in all of that. Now, I want you to look at verse 22. They were very sad and began to say to him, One after another, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will, just go, will go just as is written about him. But woe that to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would, who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. When you read through the Passover feast and what happens in the course of this meal, 
two things specific to those verses are part of it. One is that there has, has to be and was ceremonial washings of the hands before certain parts of the meal. And one of the ceremonies of washing took place immediately prior to the dipping of food into a bowl of water, oftentimes salt water, and that was part of their ritualistic meal. All of this represented cleanliness and a purification before the Lord. Well, when Jesus says specifically, and you can look at the text, there is one who dips his hand in the bowl with me, He's talking then about the Passover ritual of dipping clean, ceremonially pure hands with food into a bowl as part of the celebration. And we have one here, Judas, whose hands are anything but clean in the sense that he is going to betray the Lord, even though, ironically, they're clean ritualistically. And so Judas could go through the act of cleaning the outside of his hands, but his heart and his life and his betrayal of the Lord are exactly the opposite. And the irony here is not to be missed. Jesus knows exactly what's happening, that there is one with a heart that is impure, whose hands are nonetheless clean, dipping in a bowl of communion with him, celebrating the freedom that they have in Christ. We'd miss that entirely if we don't understand something about the Lord's Supper. Then look at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. One of the things that you may not know is that when Jesus breaks the bread, he doesn't break it just in order that they can take the pieces and separate it among themselves. There were, in fact, three pieces of bread on a plate during the cedar meal. And they would, at different times, break these pieces of bread. And the notion of breaking the bread had specifically to do with the parting of the Red Sea. And when you break the bread, it symbolizes the parting of the sea and the Israelites passing through. And so, again, there's a sense of emancipation, of freedom, When the bread is broken, there's an expression there that God has done something for his people when the bread is broken. And so he's not just breaking bread in order to make sure that there are 12 pieces. He's instead participating, Jesus is, in a ritualistic action that symbolizes something about the Passover. And the fact is is that when we break bread each Sunday, the same thing in some sense is happening. In fact, it would be very appropriate for the person who presides at the Lord's Supper for us to actually break the bread, to symbolize something about what's happening as the bread is broken. In the course of doing this, we actually come up with a different metaphor. For them, it had to do with the parting of the Red Sea. For us, it has to do with the shattered body of Jesus on the cross. Although it's interesting, you know, we always say, the broken body of Jesus on the cross and the bread symbolizing that. But you know, it's the one thing that the scriptures say about Jesus' body is that it's not broken. There was not a body broken. No bones were broken in Jesus. It's a life that is broken. It's his 
eternal existence with the Father that some sense is broken in the midst of taking our sins upon himself. So there is a breaking that takes place each week, but as the bread breaks, it's not the sea, it's the body of Jesus that is broken, and we need to recognize that. By the way, if you look also at verse 26, there's two little words there that we oftentimes miss. What does Jesus do just before he breaks the bread and eats it? He says that he gives thanks. And it's interesting that today we celebrate Thanksgiving. And John made specific mention of this when he was talking at the Lord's Supper about how we do celebrate Thanksgiving tomorrow, but that the real true thankfulness and thanksgiving takes place today as we take not, not that supper, but this supper. And that's exactly right. And when Jesus gives thanks here in verse 26, Jesus is not thanking God at that point for his food. This is not a prayer before the meal to bless the food so that we all can be nourished, you know, where we say, and Lord, bless it to the nourishment of our bodies. This is not what he's praying about. Jesus is instead blessing the bread and thanking the bread or thanking God for the bread as the symbol of their freedom coming out of Egypt and the parting of the sea. And so again, when we pray for the bread or pray for the fruit of the vine, we're not praying for the meal that we're taking, but we're praying for the freedom that we have in Christ and thanking God for what we have. And in that sense, this becomes the ultimate thanksgiving kind of meal. And then in verse 27, then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. And there's this language of new covenant. There's the language of forgiveness that comes with the drinking of the wine and the shedding of the blood. But when you go back and look at the Passover and ask the question about the sharing of wine, there are at least four times in the midst of the Passover meal when wine is shared. And there's a very specific reason why the wine is shared in the course of the Passover. And it's not to commemorate something of the shedding of blood. It has nothing to do with the blood of the lamb. Instead, it has everything to do with the joy and the celebration that the Israelites experienced in coming out of the Exodus. Joy and celebration and happiness for them are represented by the wine, which, if you ever had any, sometimes can produce a little bit of happiness. And so the Jews are drinking here wine representative of the joy that they experience in their new life as free citizens coming out of the Exodus. Now, I want you to flip over. You're in Matthew 26. I want you to go over to Luke 22. And look at verse 14. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, and watch his language here, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, which in this case he takes first as one of the four times when wine is taken during the course of the Passover. After taking the cup, he gives thanks and says, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And at first, that sounds like a kind of somber experience where Jesus is talking about his blood. He talks about this wine and now we're to drink this as representative of his death on the cross and our purification. But if we see all of that in the context of the Passover where wine represented joy and celebration, all of a sudden the wine takes on a completely different kind of connotation. And so what should you be thinking about as you take the wine at the Lord's Supper? What should be on your mind? What should be your attitude? Well, it would seem that Jesus wants us more than anything to have a celebratory attitude. He wants us to be rejoicing and happy about what we're experiencing as we take the fruit of the vine together, even in the midst of the Lord's Supper. Now, we, I say even in the midst of the Lord's Supper because we tend to think in terms of crucifixion. We tend to think in terms of the shedding of blood. And he does talk about that. In fact, he talks about that just a couple of verses later. But preeminent on his mind, because it's related specifically to the wine, is the notion not of sadness, but of joy. And that's why he eagerly desires to eat the Passover among them. He's wanting to celebrate with them before he goes. And we need to celebrate with each other. So it's a, it's a joyful occasion. We should be doing this with smiles on our faces. I don't know that we need to dance a jig every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But it doesn't necessarily have to be the somber, heads bowed, quiet time that we often think that it is. In fact, I would say that that somber, quiet time, reflective time that we think the Lord's Supper is, may well come out of a ritualistic perception of what the Lord's Supper is, rather than the biblical perception of what the Lord's Supper is. Can you imagine people celebrating a meal together to begin with, and then drinking some wine in the middle of that meal to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, and in the midst of it, being somber and quiet and staid and sad. It just doesn't really fit the image of what the Lord's Supper appears to have intended to be from the outset. So when Jesus says, even this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you, he's rejoicing at the fact that new life is coming to them as the blood is poured out. Because that's how the Passover Jews would have thought of the celebration of wine. The cross is an occasion for joy. A new covenant is being established. Rather than just a sense of solemn, quiet reflection. And I'm not saying, by the way, that solemn, quiet reflection shouldn't somehow be part of this. It could be for sure. You can't think of the death and resurrection of Jesus without thinking about the impact of all of that for your own life and your own sin. But I would say that rejoicing, and maybe in some glee-filled way, typifies better what the early church was doing when they celebrated the Lord's Supper together around a meal table than what we typically do on Sunday morning. So, brothers and sisters, it's Thanksgiving. And it seems to me that in the midst of Thanksgiving, we've already celebrated although maybe we didn't do it in a way this morning uh, with as much glee as could be there. But we've already celebrated the kind of thanksgiving and joyful experience that is supposed to be ours every Sunday in Jesus. Because that's how the original bread was broken. That's how the original wine was taken. And we today have remembered this same life given for us, the forgiveness of our sins, the new life that we have in Jesus, and there's just rejoicing that's supposed to be present in all of this. It's not just remembrance. 
Now, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I'm not sure why remembrance has to be thought of as a solemn occasion. Isn't it the case that when we think about Jesus and what it is that he did, that we should have some joy experienced in our hearts because of of remembering Jesus? And it needs to happen even during the course of the Lord's Supper, that we rejoice in Christ and rejoice in our new lives. And so the prayers that are said the meal that is shared, the scriptures that are read, the things that we share together all entail what I would say is a true thankfulness to God for what Jesus has done, including a true joyfulness in him as we celebrate the meal together. Maybe you didn't come to the Lord's table with all of that on your mind today, but you're gonna take the Lord's Supper again and you're gonna have the chance to come with that kind of perception as you take the supper, perhaps for the rest of your life. I hope we do. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray and ask that you fill our hearts with uh, an overabundant joy as we reflect on what it is that Jesus has done for us. And it seems like this this time of the Lord's Supper that you've given us as a special event in our Sunday, that there's some things that we could do with this and attitudes with which we could approach it that would change everything about it for us. And Father, I pray that you would move us to maybe have a little bit more Passover uh, with the fulfillment of Christ coming as the sacrificial lamb, as the ultimate element of the feast that brings to us joy and happiness because of what we have in him. Thank you for this new covenant that you've given us in Jesus and the ways in which we can celebrate it through the Lord's Supper. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.